Welcome to Making Sense of the Madness. I'm your host, Sean Morgan. We're going to question the mainstream narrative and expose media propaganda like we always do. We have some of the hottest news stories of the day. You're not going to find them on the mainstream media. We're also going to talk to Daniel Sashkoff. He created a platform that's censorship-proof using decentralized technologies. We're going to talk to him about why that's so important now. So much more. Stay with us. Let's get right into the breaking news. We've got Bob Saget's family is filing a lawsuit to block the release of the details and records related to his mysterious death. I saw a video today where he was on a recent podcast and he had joked that he was going to be dead soon and found in his bed. Very odd statement to make right before you actually die. And so very interesting that his family is trying to block the details about this death. Many people are speculating about it. In other news, we have got Alec Baldwin being sued uh, by the Hutchins family for a wrongful death when he was on the, the set of Rust, pointed a loaded gun and shot and killed a cinematographer there. Uh, he has refused to give his iPhone for a whole month, uh, even though he was court ordered to give it. Well, he's finally did hand it over, but I guess we're gonna find out in that court proceeding more of the details related to that incident. And very convenient that recently a mysterious extremist group of 13 individuals with weapons arrived at the Freedom Convoy in Alberta. And it's right when Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergency Act. It makes you wonder if some of those were federal plants. And there is a video here I'm going to show you of the People's Convoy. That's the name of the convoy that's going to be going from California to D.C. A thousand truckers reportedly getting ready. Let's watch it now. All right, we get some breaking news now. We're still following those truckers fighting for their freedoms in Canada and around the world. And right here, right now, the U.S., a freedom convoy is set to depart from California to our nation's capital in just a couple of weeks to protest COVID mandates. Now, this, folks, is an exclusive right here on The Balance. We're about to get information about those plans. Please welcome Brian Bass. He's a trucker and co-founder of the People's Convoy. Maureen Steele, a national organizer with the convoy. Josh Yoder, he's a pilot and founder of the U.S. Freedom Flyers. And Dr. Ryan Cole is here. He's a co-founder of the Global COVID Summit. Thanks all for being here. Maureen, I'm going to start with you because you got some breaking news for us. You got some information about the U.S. version of the Canadian Truckers Convoy. Tell us about it. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we do. We have a big announcement today. Um, we are here to announce that um, the Global COVID Summit, the doctors of that, and the pilots of U.S. Freedom Flyers are joining hands with um, the truckers in in the convoy. Um, some of them will be embedding in the convoy, uh, and this is this is exciting. This is a slice of Americana, and that white collar and blue collar are joining hands, and um, we're all in this together. Okay, great. Brian, now you're one of the co-founders of, of the convoy. Tell us what the plan is. What's your message? Our message is uh, kind of a couple there, but freedom uh, and the state and federal mandates and the, um, you know, the, the, how do I say it? And the emergency power authorities remind Americans of their freedoms. You know, people have become too comfortable with government on our freedoms. And then, of course, accountability. We want congressional hearings, and Americans deserve uh, clarity. Yeah, and Josh, I think this is fascinating. Pilots getting involved as well to support your fellow freedom-fighting patriots. Tell us why you guys got involved. Yeah, absolutely. As, as everyone knows, you know, the airline industry, we, we had really totalitarian orders that came down, you know, mandating that, that we get the jab or lose our jobs. Uh, we stood up starting back in August, and it was very effective within our industry. Uh, the truckers and the doctors came to us and asked us to, if we would support the movement, you know, and we just want to stand with them in solidarity. I mean, we believe that Americans deserve freedom. It's really frustrating to see that, that people have allowed, you know, so much of our freedoms to be taken, and I think it's time that we all stand together as Americans. This isn't about pilots, truckers, or anyone else. It's really about the American people as a whole. 
No doubt. And that's why we've been so extensively covering this, because it is about our freedoms, our hard fought freedoms. We lost a lot of lives fighting for that flag and the freedoms that seem to be so quick. The, the dictators seem to be so quick to pull away in Canada and maybe in the U.S. Dr. Ryan, t- tell me about why doctors are getting involved in this. Uh, we've been sharing the science. We've been sharing the challenges and problems with what's been going on, what's been suppressed, the way we've wanted to help and save lives, the dangers of experimenting on humanity with uh, unproven gene shots. And so today, uh, I'm not a doctor. Uh, I'm with the pilots, and all of us today are truckers. Uh, I have a big truck, a big rig on my farm, and I I know Brian. He's a, a freedom-loving, you know, just red, white, and blue through and through. This is a, this is a peaceful movement about bringing back those freedoms that, like you said, we fought for. This is about ending the emergency powers. This is about, you know, the mandates, they're going to pull those back. They better. You didn't think that Americans were just going to stand by and let Canadians fight for all of our freedoms, did you? know Americans are getting ready. It's going to happen very soon, leaving from California, going all the way to D.C., not just truckers. Did you hear that? There's going to be pilots, all kinds of organizations. This is a working class movement. It's a revolution. It's a peaceful revolution, and it's really exciting to cover. We're going to keep on covering it every night. Well, Project Veritas just released hidden camera footage of an FDA executive officer saying that Biden wants to inoculate as many people as possible, and you'll have to get an annual shot. You can watch it now. Biden wants to inoculate as many people as possible. So you have to get an annual shot. I mean, it hasn't been formally announced yet. They don't want to like uh, rile everyone up. The drug companies, the food companies, the vaccine companies, they pay us hundreds of millions of dollars a year to hire and keep the reviewers to approve their products. If they can get every person required at an annual vaccine, that is a recurring return of um, uh, money going into their, their company. I mean, just from everything I've heard, they're not going to not approve it. Meet Christopher Cole, an executive officer at the FDA with over 20 years experience who claims to be directly involved in the approval process of the various COVID vaccines. What you're about to witness raises some alarming concerns from the government's desire to mandate an annual vaccine for everyone, including young children, to the billions of dollars that exchange hands between our government and Big Pharma to railroad the approval process. I'm a manager for the uh, Food and Drug Administration. My, uh, my agency oversees vaccines, oh. vaccine approvals and, and uh, devices for vaccines. And my office clears all the uh, emergency approvals. Since COVID is under an emergency uh, order, we expedite the approval of any emergency. I've been there for like 22 years. Biden wants to inoculate as many people as possible. So you have to get an annual shot. I mean, it hasn't been formally announced yet because they don't want to, like, uh, rile everyone up. So, Is it going to be formally announced? Yeah, yeah, at some point. I mean, it's going to be, uh, uh, and some of it's been talked about publicly, but it has been talked about on, like, CNN or Fox or MSNBC or anything. Um, but, yeah, it'll, 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 you'll have to get uh, an annual. I think um, what's going to happen is um, it's going to be a gradual thing. School's going to mandate it. Why do they need the third one? Well, the same reason um, that you or I would need the third one, because the, the vaccine, um, it wanes. Mm-hmm. Um, your ability to fight it, it wanes. So the three will bolster your, your system. And then there will be an annual, um, eventually an annual, just like the flu shot. For the toddlers? Well, for everyone. Okay, so the toddlers too then. We'll have to get Pro- it annually. Okay. I mean, yeah. that's in the future. We're not sure. Mm-hmm. That might involve more... Uh, more studies. The FDA was scheduled to meet this week to discuss approval of the Pfizer vaccine for children as young as six months old. They were hoping to have the new vaccine available by the end of the month, but the meeting was unexpectedly canceled, citing the need for more testing. You guys have been in the news a lot the last couple of days. Yeah, we're looking at um, trying to approve. Um, I don't completely agree with their the process. They're looking at trying to inoculate um, um, kids under five years old, mm-hmm. between six months and five years old. What do you mean you don't agree with the process? Well, I mean they um, they don't have all the all the tests aren't there. 
So I agree with the thing that it is important to inoculate them, um, but you can't provide the, um, the parent as much um, assurity as you normally want to. Despite Cole's concerns regarding the possible dangers of vaccinating young children, it seems the FDA is still willing to go through with this approval. It's an EUA for all, all, um, all age groups, all designations, and then you have to get approved by specific age groups based on the study. Do you think it's really an emergency for the toddlers? Well, they're all uh, improved under an emergency just because it, um, it's not as, as impactful as some of the other approvals, emergency approvals, but they're all being approved under that uh, standard. The efficacy data doesn't have to be as high. Mm. The standard is on emergency use authorizations is that it does more benefit than harm. So how do you know it's already getting approved? Well, they're not going to, um, I mean, just from everything I've heard, they're not going to not approve it. I thought their cases weren't that high for six what? months to four-year-olds. They're not, but it, because it's um, related to COVID, it's under that approval process. So how many babies did they have to jab basically for the trial? I, I don't know. I haven't looked at the trial. Um, how many people they did? You never. There's always a chance of long, long-term effects, especially with someone younger. Cole seems certain the federal government will require annual COVID vaccines, including young children, even though the efficacy, adverse reactions, and long-term effects are still unknown. It's hard to find like pregnant women. Um, for these studies and, um, and a significant number in order to be uh, statistically uh, accurate. I haven't tested enough on pregnancy, on, you know, vaccines and everything and, and women because they have different, you know, systems than men. And they, they haven't tested enough? Well, they, they have, but they, they haven't done enough prior. Now they also have been very good at promoting that, but that was an issue for uh, a period of time. Well, I feel like that's still an issue. It is still an issue. It's still, it's still, we still haven't gotten there. I, I read like a couple articles about it and everything I saw was that the first two shots weren't effective. There, there has been, uh, yes, it is, has not been as effective as they're expecting. I agree. And if all that doesn't raise some eyebrows, just wait until you see what he says in part two about the billions of dollars exchanging hands between our government and Big Pharma and what really goes on behind the scenes during the approval process. There's almost a billion dollars a year going into FDA's budget from the people we um, regulate. If they can get every person required at an annual vaccine, that is a recurring return of um, uh, money going into their, their company. He was just so cold when he was talking about those toddlers, how he knew it wasn't an emergency that, you know, toddlers are not getting sick and dying from COVID. And yet uh, he seemed totally fine with these toddlers getting uh, inoculated every single year. Um, I'm so happy the Project Veritas is doing this type of work so we can find out what's behind the curtain. What do they really think? And so looking forward to part two on that. The Canadian Parliament members have been shouting down Trudeau multiple times as he dodged questions about his unprecedented use of the Emergency Act. Check out this video. invoke the Emergencies Act. 24 hours in and there are more questions than answers. Questions about whether this is justified, questions around if the criteria is met, questions around what this means to Canadians' rights and freedoms. Parliamentary approval is required in order for the Prime Minister to use this unprecedented sledgehammer. So can the Prime Minister tell us when will Parliament be debating this? Will it be coming to us on Friday? And does he expect that we will look at it Friday, but then rise, take a week off, and not actually deal with this until March? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Speaker, after discussions with Cabinet and Caucus, after consultations with the Premiers of all provinces and territories, after a conversation with the opposition leaders, we decided to invoke uh, the Emergencies Act to supplement provincial and territorial capacity 
to address the blockades and occupations. I want to be very clear, Mr. Speaker. The scope of these measures are time-limited and geographically targeted. They are reasonable and proportionate to the threats they are meant to address, and they are fully to be compliant with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms to uh, reassure all Canadians uh, that this is the right thing to move forward. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. I had a very simple question to the Prime Minister he was not able to answer. It would appear this could be more political drama for the Prime Minister. He name-calls people that he disagrees with. He wedges. He divides. He stigmatizes. Yet in spite of all of his failure, Coote's border has cleared. Windsor has opened up. Provinces and police are doing their jobs and blockades are starting to come down. But the Prime Minister thinks that now is the time to use this extreme measure and invoke the Emergencies Act. Isn't it true that the Prime Minister's actions could serve to actually make things worse and not make things better? Exactly. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. This is about keeping Canadians safe, protecting their communities and neighbourhoods, and ensuring that jobs and our economy. I'm afraid I'm going to have to interrupt the honourable, the right honourable prime minister. I'm trying to hear the answer, and I'm having a very difficult time. There's some shouting going on. I'm going to have to ask the honourable members maybe just keep it down. And if you've got something that you're not agreeing with, talk amongst yourself with someone next to you. You don't have to shout it out to the person across the floor. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, you are absolutely right. This is a time for responsible leadership, not crass partisanship. The situation requires additional tools not held by other federal, provincial or territorial law. It's what responsible leadership requires. These measures must be and will be compliant with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We will always defend the rights of Canadians to peaceful assembly and to freedom of expression. But these blockades need to end and unfortunately Conservative politicians continue to encourage the leaders of these blockades. Well, Leader of the Opposition. Well, let's get down to the basics of what this is really about. This is about the Prime Minister's ideological attachment to keeping COVID restrictions and mandates. 63% of Canadians want the restrictions and mandates to end. Conservative presented a motion yesterday asking simply for a plan, but the Prime Minister is in denial and is ignoring the science. He might as well be back at the cottage because he's doing nothing productive or constructive to help this situation. Can the Prime Minister tell Canadians when he will end the divisive, outdated and unscientific mandate and restrictions? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Like I said, this is a time for responsible leadership to end these blockades. Unfortunately, the Conservatives continue to play partisan games. Uh, the Conservative member of Provence just yesterday... I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cut off the uh, Prime Minister just for a second. And just, I mean, heckling is usually throwing one comment out. Clever, hopefully, although not always necessary. <laughs> But what I'm hearing is someone bullying and trying to drown someone out. That's not heckling. I just want everyone to take a deep breath. And I'll let the Prime Minister start from the top, please. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Unfortunately, we see that even in a moment of extremely challenging times when uh, people are moving forward with responsible leadership and responsible tools, the Conservatives can't help themselves but play class, crass political games and divide. The Conservative member for Provence just yesterday embraced the leaders of this blockade and amplified their cause. The Conservative member for Yorkton Melville said this weekend that blockaders who ripped down fencing around our national war memorial are patriots. The Conservative leadership contender from Carleton continues to say he's proud. Honorable député de Louis Saint Laurent. Pendant 17 jours, le premier ministre n'a pas levé le petit doigt sur ce qui se passait ici à Ottawa. Plutôt, il a insulté les gens qui ne l'écoutaient pas, qui ne partageaient pas son point de vue. Résultat, Monsieur le Président, hier, le premier ministre a sorti une loi qu'on n'a pas utilisée pendant un demi-siècle. 
Il affirme avoir consulté les premiers ministres. C'est faux. Il a plutôt informé les premiers ministres, puisque plus de la moitié des premiers ministres provinciaux sont contre. Le premier ministre Legault a très bien dit en disant que le premier ministre canadien jette de l'huile sur le feu. Pourquoi le premier ministre agit toujours pour camoufler son inaction? Well, it's always interesting to see another country's parliamentary procedures is both more polite and more rude at the same time. But this is a historic time, and it's good to see that there is opposition even in the highest halls. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing Canadians fight this out to the bitter end to get their freedom. Well, it's interesting development that we learned from Robert Malone about Trudeau's family, their foundation, and their conflicts of interest. Uh, listen to this. There, there is uh, in Canada quite a bit of speculation that Justin Trudeau and his family's foundation holds 40% of Acuitas. Acuitas is the uh, manufacturer of the catalytic lipids that are used by Pfizer and the formulation technology. It's privately held. Uh, so there, there appears that there may be a major financial conflict of interest on the part of uh, Mr. Trudeau. You got to be kidding uh, me. How long have you known this, Robert? Um, I have known that there was speculation uh, that this might be the case. Remember, I know uh, um, Peter Cullis, uh, the academic at the University of British Columbia that gave rise to Acuitas, and I've spoken to him uh, over time, including over the last couple of years, a couple of times. Uh, I've known him professionally for decades. Very interesting development. It's unbelievable. This is a bombshell. And if we find out that Fauci and, and Trudeau and Biden and all of these technocrats are personally profiting while people die from this stuff, it's going to really, really be bad for them. This is crimes against humanity, and they're trying to profit at the same time. Well, a Holocaust survivor named Vera Sharov says that this tyranny really is like the Holocaust and the experimentation that the Nazis did, despite the fact that leftists don't like that comparison. Well, she has credibility. Let's listen to what she has to say. I think the best thing that's happened so far are the truckers in Canada, who hopefully will be a model for other truckers and other working class people who will rise up and say enough. They are our hope. <laughs> and it's a fact that we really, really need to recognize that people who are not totally brainwashed can see the big lie. And they're really prompted to get up and take their chances and do what has to be done to stop it. I hope that others follow and that we will be rid of this. Of course, we really need to put the perpetrators on trial. This is terribly important. I want to stress that the vital lesson from the Holocaust, which many survivors who were quite prominent, some Nobel laureates like Elie Wiesel, they noted that what facilitated the Holocaust was the silence and indifference of those who watched and did nothing to prevent it. Silence the onlookers and the failure to intervene. That's what caused the Holocaust. And uh, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German Protestant minister during the Hitler regime stated, and quote, Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Well, that is such a great, inspiring message. And I think everyone at home can really make the decision right now. Are you going to be silent? Are you going to do nothing? Or are you going to speak out? Are you going to be a part of this historical movement to secure our freedoms for the future generations. That's it for the breaking news update. When we get back, we're going to talk to Daniel Sashkoff about his platform that is censorship proof. 
Uh, and we're just going to hear a word from our sponsor. We're going to talk to Daniel soon. Hello, everyone. This is John Michael Chambers, the creator and founder of American Media Periscope. Family, finances, faith, and freedom are four things that most of us would do almost anything to protect. At American Media Periscope, we trust the team at Sovereign Advisors with financial advice. With over 27 years of experience, a team that believes in people over profit and shares our views that family, finances, faith, and freedom need to be protected can help you protect your finances from erosion due to governmental policies that are out of our control. What is in our control? Our own decision to act or to not act. At American Media Periscope, we encourage you to act. Action changes things. Call Sovereign Advisors today, ask your Dr. Kirk Elliott, and start working with a team that will help you protect your retirement assets while sharing your desire to protect family, faith, and freedom. Call them today at 720-605-3900 and tell them John Michael Chambers sent you. Remember, freedom, it's up to us. Daniel Sashkoff is an inventor who has worked and published research in fields such as mathematical finance and machine learning. He's won numerous awards for his scientific work, and his goal in inventing Bastion.com was to interact, was to counteract censorship through the use of decentralized technologies. Welcome to the show, Daniel. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Sean. Thank you for having me. So tell me about the problem. You know, what was it that was going on in the world and with the sites out there that made you want to create a solution? Yes, uh, uh, I actually do have a background both in finance and technology, so I've worked in different fields. And uh, uh, when I saw the censorship starting about five years ago, I realized that this is going to be a road that, that really will lead kind of to the end. I don't think the censorship once started can sort of stop halfway. And I started studying the problem. And I firmly believe, you know, first of all, that... Uh, uh, that the the next step in this in the censorship, the next wave of censorship will be much tougher. That we're not at the end of the censorship road, rather somewhere like toward the middle. Uh, and uh, I've foreseen it to some degree years ago. I don't think I'm unique in that. But my perspective was as somebody who works in technologies and finance is to come up with a solution, right? And uh, the solution that I've created is Bastion.com uh, is a website basically a decentralized technology. The key thing about Bastion is that it's non-corporate and it's open sourced and is distributed under a, a very, very um, kind of liberal license, meaning that anybody can see the code, anybody can copy it and so on and so forth. And I will explain why that's really, really important. So uh, the next wave of censorship, in my opinion, right? It's, it starts with the censoring bloggers uh, like yourselves, it then goes to the level of, um, you know, basically blanket bans on, on certain topics like we're seeing right now as well. But the next phase of censorship could very well be uh, blocking of certain domains. Like uh, there's a DNS service that's highly centralized, which when you enter a website uh, domain, it maps to an IP address. It's very easy to block parts of that DNS service uh, to block certain websites that actually uh, have learned to not rely on social networks, right? Uh, the other thing that could be done is um, uh, China-style censorship, like they have this thing called deep packet inspection, which has done a lot in security. But in the censorship sense, it means that you're not blocking a domain, you're not blocking a blogger, you're actually blocking a whole kind of traffic, right? You're looking for protocols uh, that try to share data. So it is my firm belief that you know, we're seeing even from the segments you heard before that clearly this psychological operation is, is not going as well for them as it should. And uh, the, the next phase of it will commence only after they're able to really slow down the communication because the communication mediums, you know, the internet, the alternative social platforms, the websites, uh, they're allowing people to share information. So my goal in creating the, the bastion all along was to create a tool that is that can overcome some of these things, right? That can overcome blocking of domains. They can overcome even deep packet inspection. And uh, I'm not a coder per se, right? There are actually almost uh, 30 people working on Bastion right now. I'm the designer. I do a lot of scientific work. I publish articles and I sort of 
inspired some of the really good programmers I know to work on this problem for a number of years. Uh, and at this point, right, we've built it. We built a tool that will withstand uh, the next wave of censorship. You can think of it as like a presidential communication service that bloggers, authors, and readers can use to actually stay in touch, even if some more of the draconian measures are enacted. Right? We're seeing what's going on in Canada. You know, why couldn't they do this to to the internet? So that's the goal of creating Bastion. And Bastion.com is a website. But also, if you go there, there's a way to download an app for a computer, for your personal computer, which actually doesn't work through the website. It works directly to the nodes in the world. In other words, Bastion doesn't live on any centralized servers. There's no way to say, you know, let's shut down this server or that server. It lives on, it lives on users' computers around the world, just like Bitcoin, essentially, because it's built on top of the Bitcoin core code. And uh, this allows some unique censorship resistance properties. Yeah, it's much more resilient than, say, uh, Gab.com, Parler.com, some of these free speech alternatives where they're housing their servers and maybe a couple of different places. And if they have a natural disaster, they get attacked and those different servers are taken down, the whole site comes down. But if you have a really resilient network, that's not possible. So that's definitely solving a problem there. But it was scary to hear you say that we're only halfway <laughs> through the censorship spectrum because we've had a sitting president be deplatformed in Canada. Anyone who's donated money to these gives and go is having their bank accounts frozen and closed. So it's very aggressive now. So just imagine it getting worse. You're saying people are getting censored when they publish kind of publicly. But in the future, they could get uh, just they can't even share information about a certain topic with others peer to peer. Is that what you're saying? Because I did have a situation yeah. where Google Drive deleted a documentary about uh, devolution from Patel Patriot. They deleted it from my personal Google Drive. Just, you know, they didn't ask permission. They didn't tell me beforehand. They didn't want me to own that video in my Google Drive. It went against their so-called terms of service and they just deleted it. So you're talking about stuff like that on a massive scale? Yeah, I do believe that's the goal. Now I'm optimistic that uh, creativity and inventiveness of people uh, free movement of ideas uh, will solve this problem, but I do believe it's going to get worse before it gets better. And yeah, you you hit one of the other extreme scenarios is where the censorship goes even to a messenger level. So if you send personal messages in uh, you know whatever WhatsApp or or even or even Telegram, perhaps uh, there's a new platform that's really popular uh, that it could be censored. I mean, I think that right now we're in a stage where a lot of these centralized platforms like YouTube and um, and, and especially especially YouTube, uh, what they're doing is uh, they're trying to shadow ban some some bloggers. They've banned some, but the others they don't want to ban everybody, right? Because if they ban everybody, they lose too much power that they've accumulated over the years. Uh, they're trying to actually yeah. Then they wouldn't be able to, to surveil people, people, right? <laughs> well, then, yeah, that, that surveillance would be one downside is one of, one to deplatforming millions of people, wouldn't it? You wouldn't be able to surveil them anymore. It, it, surveillance is part of it, but also it's controlling the narrative. And I think that what they want to do is they want to teach uh, authors and bloggers to self-censor. So if you have enough strikes, you have enough shadow bans, you realize that, well, maybe I will use some language, right? That You already see that. Some bloggers will not use certain words. They'll try to use code words. Then eventually they'll drop those topics and they'll, they, basically they're going to learn to leave with censorship. So that's what they want to do. Once they actually draw the line between the bloggers that are able to self-censor and the ones that are sort of, you know, not they, they cannot be re-educated, uh, then they're going to ban all of the bloggers that cannot be re-educated. And that's going to be the, the commencement of the next phase. But you have to realize that this is not emotion speaking. I'm not a particularly like a partisan or political person. This is pure logic that if you're, you know, if you're trying to do something like you know, what they're doing right now, and it's not working, your only choice is to go after communications, right? Communications and finances. Uh, we're seeing a lot of it in, on both fronts, but the logic is that it has to go much further, right? And uh, that's the nature of, of uh, kind of social media, especially in the age of free money, right? All these platforms, they've grown when they've got essentially free money from Federal Reserve. So they're able to capture a great deal of the market. They, they were able to buy up anybody who comes against them 
you know, for example, WhatsApp, I'm sure you know that Messenger was started by a person who's a very freedom-oriented person. Uh, and um, he sold it nonetheless to Facebook for $19 billion. And he, re he was very regretful. But that's the nature of the corporate project. Whereas with Bastion, what we've done is we said, let's not create a corporation with shareholders, board of directors that can actually be bought. Let's create an open platform with open code, with no intellectual property. So, for example, um, and, and this what this does is it avoids reliance on like faith in a human being, right? When you're talking about, let's say, Gap, you know, very that's a that's a very great platform, but you're kind of relying on a human being there, or maybe a few people. Uh, with Bastion, because it's open source code, anybody can see what's going on in the code, and there's no intellectual property, so. Uh, there's no if if developers start doing something that's you know goes contrary to the stated goals of the platform, all of a sudden any other group of developers can come in and, and take the project and create a proper version of of Bastion as it's meant to be, and that I think is a very important safeguard. Uh, that imagine if like YouTube was able, was banning all these bloggers and bloggers could band together, get a few developers, and launch a YouTube as it was before the censorship. I mean that would be awesome, right? That would be a great check on their power. But alas, you cannot do that. Even if you stole the YouTube code, it's, tra it's trademarked, uh, you cannot really run it. Whereas with Bastion, it's distributed under Apache license, which is like a license that allows you to copy the code, do anything pretty much with it. So, and also the fact that it's non-corporate removes some of the other things that, that the census can do. For example, you know, Telegram right now, I don't know if you know this, I don't know if you're familiar much with Telegram, but it is a well, you, you probably are. It's a big platform now, but just recently, because of the pressure by the German government, they banned 64 big channels in Germany. Those are huge channels, and uh, they delivered a lot of information. And so Telegram had to cave. Why? Because it's a corporation, and there's lots of ways to bring corporations to heal, right? There's legal ways, and so on. And then there's a Parler that you mentioned, right? Parler was a freedom-oriented platform, was number one app, but uh, one day it was just turned off because they had their servers on one particular company's platform, right? And people don't realize this, that social media or even just media in general is first and foremost a server power, right? That's what it is. You have to have a lot of servers. But over the last few years, un unbeknownst to most people, a lot of the server capacity was centralized. Only a few companies, two or three companies own large chunks of server capacity. Yeah. We're so talking about that's Amazon, Google, right? These Amazon, Google, Microsoft monopolies, right? Yeah, it's the exactly. usual suspects, and they're all for censorship. They're all part of this agenda, apparently. Yeah, I'm very familiar with uh, this because I was deplatformed from YouTube and Twitter and all, all the big sites, and now I'm on Telegram and Gab and, and Rumble and so forth. So I'm really liking what I'm hearing here from you. I'm curious about your background because I read that you were from the, what was the called the USSR. And yeah. so is, are there any similarities between a communist regime and censorship and re-education and self-censorship? And, uh, you know, can you, can you talk about that? Yeah. And I left, I left Soviet Union when I was 15, but certainly I was already uh, very conscious of what was going on. And I had a family history uh, you know, one of my relatives, uh, um, a couple of generations back, was a nun that was sent to you know Siberia for re-education, essentially, uh, because she didn't have the right beliefs, you know, and so on. So um, I have seen those things, and obviously, I think that is one of the reasons that made that jolted me right back when most people said, "Oh, that's paranoid," you know, don't worry about it. It's just you know they're going to ban people here and there, but the free the free market will win out. What they didn't realize is that there's no longer any free market. When you can borrow money at zero, well, certain players have access to free capital and others do not. That is not a free market. That is as centralized as you can get. Not not less centralized than like a communist economy, really, in the in the long run. So that made me, I think, see the censorship for what it is. That's not being incidental, but being core to the strategy and looking at the logic of it. Trying to abstract myself from the personalities. Right? People like to hate on you know Mark Zuckerberg or whomever. And uh, I'm not saying they don't deserve it or what I, you know, I don't really get into the personal uh, opinions. I think that it's more important to look at the underlying mechanics and the underlying forces. And they're all were clear like five, five years ago that this will get really, really bad. So 
I think at this point, uh, I think at this point it's worse than Soviet Union, honestly, because in Soviet Union, most people realized that there was censorship. Most people didn't, you know, they understood that there is censorship and they only shared information personally, uh, sitting down at the kitchen to, you know, uh, at a meal or something. Uh, whereas right now, I think that uh, many people don't realize uh, the degree of censorship that occurs. And, um, you know, you, you can't get away from censorship by, by kind of ignoring it. And, you know, basically you have to sort of uh, comply and you have to bend the knee, so to speak, uh, to, to a lot of these things that are happening. So that's why we worked for, for years on this platform that doesn't have a central server, right? It's just like Bitcoin. It lives around the world. And also, very importantly, it doesn't require any personal info. It's not tied to your phone number. It's not tied to your email. It's not doesn't keep any record. So uh, it's a platform. You can open multiple accounts. Uh, obviously, we have to fight against bots and such things. Then there are mathematical algorithms against that. But it doesn't require personal info. It's open sourced and it lives on servers around the world. So I would encourage people that even if you, you know, and we're not, I'm not arguing against certainly Gab or, or Rumble or anybody. I think that's great. You have many platforms. It's harder to, to pin this down. But ultimately, you have to realize that if the tech censorship goes to the levels that I predict, and uh, it may not, but but I've been right more than, than I've been wrong over the last couple of years, unfortunately, then those platforms will, may have trouble uh, keeping the free speech flag, right? Like Telegram, right? Telegram is a great example. It's, a, it's supposed to be a very self-sufficient platform. It's owned essentially by one guy who's a billionaire. He should have no problem with you know, resisting censorship, but all of a sudden he banned like 64 channels in one country, basically cut off Telegram right. for that country. So because Bastion of the community, formation yeah. of that as a corporation instead of a protocol, that makes sense to me that they're subject to legal rules. And so they just have to comply as a corporation. But uh, if you're like Bitcoin, which is totally decentralized, not a corporation, has no leadership, uh, then they don't have to comply. It's kind of an organic, emergent quality to it. I want to learn more. we got to take a quick break. When, after a word from our sponsor, we're going to dig deeper about this. Hello, everyone. This is John Michael Chambers, the creator and founder of American Media Periscope. Now, did you know that annuities are a great way to protect a portion of your retirement portfolio from downside risk? And unlike CDs and money market accounts, they accumulate tax-deferred and can participate in the upside of market indexes. And they are probate-free and can provide an income you can't outlive. Let a company you can trust help you select an annuity that's right for you. Call the Cleveland Insurance Group at 844-USA-2024. That's 844-USA-2024. Tell them John Michael Chambers sent you. We're talking to Daniel Sashkoff, the creator of Bastion.com, the censorship-proof platform. Uh, Daniel, you know, you said that you have different problems, like you have bots, and maybe you can take care of them with some algorithms. What about pornography? That's obviously an issue because people want to have free speech. Uh, they want to be able to post whatever they want, but then you have the issue of pornography, which, you know, perhaps there are victims of human trafficking. Perhaps there are people who didn't give their permission to have their naked self out there on the Internet. Is this this seems like an obvious challenge for for a website like yours, right? Yeah, it is. And that's why we started right from the beginning thinking about that problem. That was actually the core problem. There are many technical problems in creating this this platform, but that is the core problem. How do we avoid it? So. Uh, in, in Bastion, the, the moderator, so it's, it is not a platform with no censorship. That's to be clear. We've never said that and nobody should say that because there is moder serious moderation that could be called censorship. But what it, what it is not, is not arbitrary, right? It is transparent and it's applied equally. And it's very, very simple. Uh, there are three types of content right now that are banned in the community, right? That's any kind of pornography. That is uh, direct threats of violence, and there's illegal narcotics. All these things are banned. So this is not a dark, um, dark market of any sort. And in fact, if you go to Bastion, you will see that it is far cleaner than, let's say, Facebook. Far cleaner. Uh, that is because when we started the platform, right, it worked. It was in beta test for like two and a half years, and it gathered certain number of people. And, and when you're in a platform for a while, you become one of the moderators. And these moderators fulfill the code of the platform, right? We call it the code of honor. I mean, the bastion is something like you know, medieval, so we call it code of honor. 
and uh, the moderators really flag the content. And and when enough moderators flag the content, first of all, when it's suspected by moderators, it's moved down so it's not visible to most people. And then if there is enough of these flags, then the content gets removed. Eventually, the account can get banned. But we've built systems and we're continually finding them that basically the risk the risk here, this introduces another risk, which is mob rule. Isn't there a way for a group of people to get together and try to attack somebody as if it was a pornography, right? Just because they disagree. And we've minimized that by using, and this is a new rollout that didn't happen yet, but the newest platform that we're releasing for moderation is basically jury-based. So what happens is if there are enough flags that this content is pornography or threat of violence or illegal narcotics, what happens is there's a jury code. And because we built on the top of Bitcoin code, it's actually very easy to do. You can use a really random jury call to different moderators, but the moderators don't choose to be part of that particular jury. In other words, as a moderator, you can't get together with another moderator and say, you know, let's go after this person. So they get called to a jury duty, just like in, you know, I really think the jury of your peers is one of the, however imperfect, it is the best way to resolve conflicts in the society. And so you get in, enough jurors called and then there's a quorum for people to vote and they have to vote unanimously to that, that yes, it is a pornography. At that point, the account gets locked for a while. And if there's a repeated offense, right, you get a second jury conviction. And the second jury, by the way, cannot have any members of the first jury. So this is like really uh, uh, difficult to, to actually ban people for disagreement. This has to really work. And then the second jury pretty much can ban the account. So if you go to bastion.com register, you will see that there, it is a very clean platform. And when people come in and try to disregard this and, and, and post stuff that is you know, not allowed by the community, they get very quickly downvoted and they get thrown out of the platform. So this, this system already is in operation for you know, three and a half years. It's shown itself to be very strong. We expect there'll be more attacks, maybe not even for people who want pornography, but just for people who want to destroy the platform. But there are lots of ways that we can handle this because uh, yes, it seems like it's difficult to do, but also there is a blockchain, right? The blockchain gives you a lot of opportunities to create like jury-based moderation and so on. It's all up to the people, really. If people are members of Bastion, right? If they go crazy and decide to allow this stuff and don't moderate it, don't go to jury duty, then it will die. So I'm actually looking at Bastion, not just as a platform, but almost like as a social, you know, a social experiment, if you will, in, in responsibility. I feel like especially the last you know, couple of decades, the technology led us to a place of dependence. The convenience is not you know, the main thing, even though Bastion, you go check it out. It's very smooth. It works very well. I don't think it's inferior to any of the big platforms, but it is not convenient in the sense that, for example, your private key, just like Bitcoin private key, if you lose it, nobody can restore it for you. You can't just go to Google and say, restore my password. It's not convenient. Some people complain about that. Why can't you restore my password? And I explained to them, do you realize that the fact that the Google can restore your password means that they can control your account completely, right? So this is an element of responsibility by having your private key, writing it down just like Bitcoin and being an owner, responsible owner. So I think that the Bastion has already proven itself as not just a, a place for, for free thought and free speech, which it is. It's got a lot of great bloggers. I invite you to join it. Uh, because, you know, as one of the platforms, but it's also shown itself to be a way for people to get out of this dependence, right? Get out of the dependence on right. uh, it's convenience. It's a parasitic right? relationship with the big tech. They make everything so convenient. I mean, uh, Gmail archives, everything is so searchable. Oh, I just love that product. And yet, uh, when I try to send a message to a friend using Gmail, sometimes certain keywords will trigger some kind of filtering algorithm and it'll be sent to my friend's spam folder. So like I said, uh, it, Google Drive, they, they deleted a documentary that had nothing illegal, yeah. nothing bad about it. Uh, so it, it, we got to just give up that convenience and maybe be willing to learn a little bit about the new kind of private way of interacting. Can you describe a in a little bit more detail this spectrum of censorship and where it could go, uh, because uh, it is scary, but I think the more people get scared about that, the more they'll be motivated to get resilient. So can you describe the different scenarios that could unfold? 
Yeah, absolutely. I believe that uh, the very straightforward way is for DNS problems. And it doesn't have to be called censorship, right? It could be called uh, a hacker attack. Or if you remember some months back, like uh, um, uh, Facebook was down and Instagram, and then with them, a whole bunch of websites went down. Um, uh, I don't know what that was. It's it's kind of hard to believe that somebody just kind of pushed the wrong button to do all that. There must be checks against that, you know, multi-factor authorization or something. But uh, but whatever it was, it showed that you know there are segments of this DNS system of the World Wide Web that are are dependent. They can they can be turned off. Now the internet is still working, right? The packets are still going, but a lot of the websites are not resolving, are not working. So um, uh, and uh, right now, some of the censorship that happens um, is that by blocking domains, right? Certain countries block certain domains. But what what if it was reversed? What if the DNS went down and then there was a list of only allowed websites? Uh, you know, can you? Does this sound paranoid? When I told people a couple of years ago, they said this was crazy. But after Canada, does this sound so crazy? You know, I don't think so after, you know, speaking of seizing people's bank accounts and so on. So it could very well be. So that, that I think is the base case. That is the easiest way to clamp down on, uh, you know, basically wrong think is to uh, uh, put, you know, put down large parts of DNS. So, you know, I don't think shutting down the whole internet is feasible. I don't think that's going to happen. I really don't think that's a worry. If it happens, I think there's bigger things because it's just such an uncertain scenario. Shutting down all of the internet is a certain for everybody, even for people who are doing the shutting down. I don't think they they really would like that uncertainty. I think they they would like more certainty about what's going on, and shutting down DNS provides a lot more certainty. So to me, that is the base scenario. I think if I were to sort of you know look at this and more game it as a risk manager that I've done a lot of work in risk management, that would be it, right? The other scenario uh, clearly is that if that is if that is successful then I think it would go to the messenger level because you would only use messengers that actually censor uh, based on trigger words, just like Google does, except it wouldn't be for spam, but it would be for wrong topics, right? That's another way. Uh, and then for protocols like Bastion, which you correctly said, it's a protocol, not a social network. For protocols, there are different levels of uh, uh, censorship that, for example, China employs deep, deep packet inspection, so-called. Uh, for ba Bastion actually is releasing soon an algorithm even against that level, though I don't think it's feasible in the short run. It's it's much easier to go after other, uh, and deep packet inspection, you can't blame it on like a hacker attack. That's clearly a well-designed censorship strategy, whereas blocking of many, many websites uh, could easily be uh, called a hacker attack or something like that. So unfortunately, I do believe that some of these things we'll see. I don't think it's, 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 it's worth, uh, we need to panic. I think we should go back to this idea that freedom is responsibility, right? Uh, that you have to be responsible and take action, prepare yourself for these scenarios. If they don't happen, great. If they do, you're prepared. So Bastion is not the only way, right? You have to keep your contacts, have multiple points of contact with people you know, not just in one messenger. Uh, you have to definitely have that in on paper somewhere. Uh, but Bastion.com is, you know, that's a gateway to the world of decentralization that we've been working on for four years. And I recently started talking more about it for a while. We just want, really wanted to get to a place where it's stable and, and it can withstand uh, uh, a lot of the users and, and some of the pressure. And, and it is there. There are close to 30 people, I said, working on it. There are eight different countries. These groups are fairly decentralized. In other words, like I'm more of a popularizer now doing a lot of uh, you know thought leadership and, and research but I don't actually code uh, I don't actually I'm not a programmer per se I'm more a mathematician like a math geek uh, so if there are some developers that for some reason can't operate on this others are there and people are joining every day so uh, we envision the internet the future of the internet as like bastion we believe that the older internet that with the highly centralized DNS servers, uh, with highly centralized server capacity is actually not going to work, right? No matter how you do it, you can create a great freedom-oriented platform. If you do it on the old internet, which we call like web, you know, 1.0 or 2.0, it is not going to survive. Uh, and roughly speaking, kind of what we're trying to do is a true web, web 3.0 where there's no centralized point of failure. 
Very interesting. We're running out of time, but I have one more question for you, and that's about financial resilience, resisting financial censorship for Bastion, but also just for individuals. Uh, any final comments on that? That's a great question because that is the one censorship I didn't even discuss that that is we're seeing unfold, and we're going to see it. Uh, we're going to see it, I think, in a big way. So. Uh, Bastion one is not corporate, right? So that means no bank accounts, no bank account cannot be shut down, no PayPal, no nothing, but that's only part of it. The other big part of it is, for example, the authors, right? The authors and operators of the servers. Remember, the servers are people's computers around the world. We have computers all around the world. I noticed the other day there are some computers in, you know, Southeast Asia, like Vietnam. I mean, it's, it's amazing. There are hundreds of computers now, and there will be thousands. Those people run... Uh, computers with electricity, right? They spend electricity. By the way, in Bastion, there's no mining. It's not electricity intensive like Bitcoin, but you still have to keep the computer on. It uses what's called a proof of stake algorithm. Uh, you still have to keep your computer on. You have, you basically wear and tear on the computer. You have to have bandwidth. You pay for all that. And there are not enough altruists in the world to run all that, right? Because there's a concept I'm sure you've heard of called tragedy of the commons, where you create something beautiful but people inevitably start taking more than they contribute. Whereas in Bastion, we build it on top of Bitcoin. And that is, that is the genius of Satoshi Nakamoto of Bitcoin is that it's such an elegant system. It solves many problems in one shot. When you see something that solves one problem, it's amazing enough. When you see a platform that solves like a number of key problems in one shot, that's just genius, right? So Bitcoin solves that problem because we have something called pocket coin right within Bastion. It's a cryptocurrency. It is used to um, basically do advertising. You can donate it to bloggers. You can attach it to comments and your comments are moved up so that the blogger responds to a comment and gets a donation. It's used for many different things in the platform. So it actually has tangible value by dint of people using the platform. But at the same time, the emission of pocket coin, it's emitted just like Bitcoin. It goes to the servers that run the network. So now all of a sudden you're running a server, you're doing a great thing for a good cause, but you're not just like wasting money. Over the long run, you can sustain it right. because you're making pocket coin. Same thing you for bloggers. You have a system of incentives. So you're incentivizing people to secure the network, to moderate, to, to, to behave in, in ways that are helpful to the network. Uh, that's wonderful, and it provides some, some because uh, resistance. bloggers, right? These are bloggers need to eat. But <laughs> I'm like, you know, they need well, yeah, to make exactly. money. So sorry, point uh, gives us sorry, Daniel. We're absolutely running out of time, but people need to check out your website. Go to bastion.com. You know, sign up, give it a try, and, and you can learn more by going to the website as well. We're going to go to a word from our sponsor. When we get back, I'll give you the final announcements. Thank you for watching American Media Periscope, America's Patriot-only super channel. On February 18th and 19th in Canton, Ohio, John Michael Chambers, Eric Trump, General Flynn, and many alternative doctors will be spreading truth at the Reawakening America Tour event. February 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern, James Grumvig and Alexandra Bruce will be leading a live Zoom town hall event for premium subscribers only. So make sure you sign up on our homepage. 
Tomorrow, we have Adam Hardage, who has a solution to the thousands of healthcare workers who are being wrongfully terminated. Also, Alexandra Bruce will be giving us a breaking news update. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern, right here on Making Sense of the Madness. Don't forget to sign up for my breaking news updates at seanmorganreport.com. God bless all you patriots. Good night and good luck. 